kind of preparation series going into um, marriage, the marriage series. And uh, we've been talking about preparation determines destination and how important that is in the building process of any types of relationships, whether that be marriage, friendships, anything along those lines, parents and children. There's different principles that we have here that are so important for life. And right here, we're looking at the blueprint for how to build. Everything that God has called us to build is right here. He's got the answers for us in His Word. I just want to pray real quick before we get going. Holy Spirit, we're asking You to direct us and and guide us. Not just here, but in every area of life. Every area of life. Your Word says that those who follow You are to nail the passions of their flesh to the cross of Jesus Christ and to follow your Holy Spirit in every area of life. That's what we're committed to. We know that's what you're committed to in our lives. And we want to work toward that end. Amen. Amen. How many married couples in here you would say that uh, you've arrived? When it comes to marriage, you've got it down and uh, you've arrived. How many, how many married couples? Jeremy, David, awesome. Yep, all right. So we're going to get their wives in here. Actually, she's right there. Yeah. So how, how many years now married? 56, 56. John and Joanne, how many years for you guys? 53, 56. We've got over 100 years right here. If we, if we just put them up on a panel right now, the things that we could learn from a hundred and some odd years of marriage. Amazing. And, uh, yeah, so Jeremy, you have to put your hands down in the, in the, in the, in the company of a hundred years, right? I know he was joking. That's my brother in love and he's over there giving me grief. He can do that. Yeah, we're not saying, you're, you're, who would say, yeah, we're finished, we've arrived. How many, how many of you have long-standing friendships? Maybe 20 plus years. How many would say you've arrived when it comes to friendships? Building friendships, maintaining friendships, growing friendships. Now, we would always say there's work to be done. Maybe Sue. Maybe Sue. The work continues. Every friendship, relationship needs ongoing work. No one is perfect but Christ. That is why He has to be, right, at the center of of every relationship. A relationship that's going to grow. I mean, it's not that there aren't couples who have been married for, you know, 30, 40 years, something like that. But Jesus, at the center of that relationship, helps us with our spouse, with our friends, to become like Jesus. To become like Jesus. That's His goal. Matthew 7 tells us that anything that is built on the rock is going to stand. Anything built on the sand, did I say that right? Is going to stand. Anything built on the sand is going to crumble. John 15 tells us that if we try and do anything apart from Him, it's going to fail. Anything apart from Him. Bottom line is we are going through this, this series here on relationships and marriage. If we prepared for marriage the way that we prepare for a wedding... I think we might have stronger marriages in terms of the foundation that's laid for the future. 
Think about the investment of time and money and energy that goes into one day. You see brides and grooms absolutely pulling their hair out, trying to deal with the level of stress in preparation for this one day that's going to go, come and then go. I'm going to get in trouble for saying this. How many brides have taken out their dress and and used it in in a practical way? Not demeaning the value of the dress because there's so much that it signifies. There's so much importance in that. And I'm not trying to diminish the value and importance of the wedding day. However, what I am referring to, though, is the intentionality in the investment that goes into making that day happen. And then a bride and a groom, they cross over from wedding day into marriage and they wonder why things are falling apart. Because our preparation determines our destination. We could look at it another way. Our preparation determines our elevation. To the degree that we build the right way strong is, will determine how high something can go. We talked about how the Space Needle downtown Seattle. There is as much under the ground as there is above the ground. That's the rumor anyway. But you look at these massive digouts that that are you know there before a huge building, a big huge skyscraper goes in. The foundation is absolutely critical. It's the reason why dudes rent tuxes ninety nine percent of the time because we're never going to use them again. But how many have had to reach back once they enter into marriage? Have had to reach back into the toolbox and pull out conflict resolution. To the, to the degree that they worked at conflict resolution prior to marriage, not just in their relationship with the person that they were dating or courting or whatever it would be. I tell my kids all the time, you know, I, we, having conversations with the kids and saying, your practice for your future spouse, you're living with them right now. They're the ones that bug you, frustrate you to no end. If you can learn to live with them and to be kind and be gentle and work things through, you can learn to live with anyone. For my son, Justice, who's 12, almost 13, when when he gets married, his practice field right now is his mom and his three sisters. I know the walkers know all about this stuff. I learned some of this from you guys. Yeah, that's the practice ground. If we can't do it there, we're fooling ourselves to think that we're just going to waltz into marriage and think that it's going to work out. That we're going to waltz into any friendship and think that things are just going to be worked through. What are we putting in our backpack? Mm. Reaching back into and pulling from these qualities and characters that were forged in years prior to marriage. Those choosing not to develop these characteristics in preparation for marriage are left ill-equipped to handle the power of the force of the two becoming one. I love this, what the Apostle Paul says here in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, he's speaking to this church at Corinth. Corinth 
If you know anything about Corinth, Corinth was in the um, Greco-Roman world and they're a, a, a vast trading route and, and uh, they had huge temples that were dedicated to sexual worship. They say that they believe that the, the temple of Aphrodite had something like a thousand temple prostitutes. A thousand of them. Now, you, if you go there, they say you couldn't actually fit that much activity in, in the place, but they're brothels all the way around. And so it was your duty. It was your worshipful obligation to go there and have sex with these different prostitutes, both male and female. Expected. Even if you were married. And these people were slaves. They were there to glorify the gods. I was looking around here before I got up and we've got a a good um, mature crowd in here. So Paul's writing to this church there. And many of them, most all of them, before they came to Christ, they were all involved in that type of activity. So it was commonplace. It wasn't something you had to, you know, hide and, and slink around and, and, you know, wonder if somebody was going to catch you. No, it was expected. Paul says this in chapter 11 of Second Corinthians. He said, I'm jealous for you. I'm jealous for you with the jealousy of God Himself. For I promised you, he's talking to the church, God is saying this to us here today. I promised you, Open Door Church, as a pure bride to one husband. And he's also saying to a, this to us individually, I promised you, Brandon. I promised you, Stephen. Bethany, you've been promised. If I, if I could stand here in this, this role, this pa- having this pastoral heart that Paul has for the churches that he oversaw. And he says, I promised you as a pure bride to one husband, Christ. You can, you can hear the father coming out of him. Like to a daughter. I, I've promised you. I don't, I don't know who he is yet, but I've promised you to this man. Sweet girl, my princess, I've, I've promised you to one man. He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. But before he ever gets here, we're going to practice you giving your heart to Jesus over and over and over again. Because I've promised you, Trinity and Madison, my Cambria, I've promised you as a pure bride to one husband, Jesus Christ. But, but I fear that somehow you will be led away from your pure and simple devotion to Christ, just as Eve was deceived by the serpent. Hmm. So he's contending with these lies and deceptions that have been, they've just been filling these people as they've been just indoctrinated in this culture of sex and glorification of idol worship. A fear somehow you will be led away from your pure and simple devotion to Christ just as Eve was deceived by the serpent. You seem to believe whatever anyone tells you. Hey girl, you're pretty good looking. 
How you doing? You seem to be easily, you seem to fall easily for these pickup lines that the culture is throwing out there. Even if they preach about a different Jesus than the one we preach. Wow, a different Jesus. But you know what? The message was so close. It was so close to some of the stuff that Paul had told them. So it was, it was hard to discern between what was right and what was wrong. But he's given them God's word so that they would have a plumb line. They could know, you know what? This is right and this is wrong. He was saying, this is how you tear down these false speculations that, that assail themselves against the knowledge of Christ. You've got to tear those things down. Even if they preach about a different Jesus than the one we preach, or a different spirit than the one you received, or a different kind of gospel than the one you believed. So how is Eve deceived? How is she deceived? You guys, the game hasn't changed. Not one bit. The game has not changed one bit. She was deceived by the devil to believe that God was keeping something from her rather than the truth that God was saving something for her. We hit on that a couple weeks ago. But that is the lie right there. Remember what the serpent said? Satan said to Eve, Really? Is, did God really say that? Is that what he really said? She had to question. You know? Well, huh. Now that you mention it, Oswald Chambers, he says this, the root of all evil is the suspicion not even the confirmation, the suspicion that God is not good. The suspicion. That's all the enemy has to do is get you to suspect that God is not good. That He's hiding something, keeping something from you in a sinister way. He doesn't want you to be able to experience this level of pleasure. Wait a minute. You mean I'm missing out? I'm missing out on all this fun? Man, is it? You know what? I've heard other people talk about how green it is over on the other side. That's that must be true. When we build, when we built our house a few years ago here, guess who was arguably the most indispensable, invaluable person to that building project? 
Take a guess. I mean, if you haven't built before, what do you have to lose? Like, nah, no, you're wrong. Contractor. Building inspector. What were you going to say, Lee? Building inspector. Holy Spirit. Believe it or not, no. (laughs) I guess ultimately, yes, but... Linda, there you go. You got two gray-haired men up here speaking truth to you. And uh, I I don't think that that's an accident that God (laughs) highlighted them to be able to say that. The inspector. The building inspector was arguably, he didn't do the work itself, but the work would have never been done correctly or properly. He saved us so much extra additional work because he was there to make sure that it was done right. The inspector. And he, he helped us see what we couldn't see on our own. Now, while we're doing this, parallel this with relationships and how we walk through relationships and the building of relationships. He helped us, he helped point out building code errors he, and where we missed clearly spelled out directives in the blueprints. Helped us see things we couldn't see. Helped bring clarity to things where we were confused. I mean, we're talking about a contractor, our building contractor, 30 years of experience building from the ground up. And this inspector had to come in and continually. Again, you see, we go along, how many, how many years, you know, 50-something years? How many have arrived? No, we, none of us have arrived. We all need help along the way in bringing these things into clarity. He showed us where we had cracks in our foundation and how to fix them. Remember, God's Word is the blueprint. Jesus is the foundation rock. And the construction team is the church. The construction team, we have inspectors in our lives. The issue is, are we going to listen to them? See, some of us try and shirk and try and get by and hide and hope the inspector won't see. Or when he does come by and says, I need this done, I need this done, I need this done, or you can't move forward, and we try and do a cheap job patching something up. What's going to happen? When we do that type of thing in relationships, and we don't go through the difficult preparation process of forming relationships prior to marriage, or in the, in, with, with our friendships that we have, we're going to end up paying the piper. Parents, friends, community, they're the ones around us in the church that help us build strong relationships and do the hard work. Do the hard work. Ah, the inspector made sure our preparation was solid, that we could build high and strong. You know what? At times it was interesting because when, when sometimes we thought, you know what, this inspector, I think he's got it out for us. I think he's got it out for us. I think that he does not have our best interests in mind. The way that he's nitpicking, pointing things out. But you know what? He's got experience and he knows what it takes in order to be able to build. The chief inspector in our lives is the Holy Spirit. His whole goal is to build so that we will look like Jesus. We will act like Jesus, talk like Jesus, think like Jesus. And there are other sub-inspectors that he authorized to help us in our lives. Parents, peers. You need some inspection, help in your marriage? 
Here's a hundred and something years right here. Wow. We've got all these people around us that can help us, but a lot of times we just like to go solo. I got this. That's the way I was when I was younger. When I was Madeline, Austin's age, Justice's age, it's like, I got this. How many houses have you built, Eric? None. I have a shovel, though. I like to dig in the dirt. Great, that's a good start. How about you get on-the-job training? Learn how to make this thing right. Ah, thought he was against us, but he was our greatest advocate. Hmm. Where to go? Where to go? There's so much focus. I hear a lot of times. I've worked with with couples for a number of years, and my parents have done marriage counseling for 40 years or something like that. And when someone is looking for or interested in getting married, they're constantly looking for the one. The right one. Who's the one? Is she the one? Is he the one? So much energy goes into that whole thing. Investment goes into that whole thing. And I I would say that there's something far more important than that, than finding the right one. And next week, uh, um, I believe that there are biblical principles and the Holy Spirit will help us in finding God's choice for us, but I believe that there is something higher, and that is rather than trying to find the right one, God and says so much more in His Word about becoming the right one. We don't have responsibility over anyone else, but we do have responsibility for ourselves. Our development, our preparation is so key, so key. I mean, God, right, He stands outside of time. He's not limited to time and space. He knows who it is that He has chosen for you. So He knows whether or not you're resisting His preparation in in your life. And He's working over here in this other person. Or we could take a, a, a friendship where you're seeking to... You know, people are always looking for friends. How many friends can I get on Facebook? It's all about acquiring friends. When's the last time you heard someone talk about becoming a friend? You know what? If you'd put your focus and energy into becoming a friend, you'd have more friends than you could possibly need. You could possibly have the emotional capacity to give yourself to. People would want to be your friend. And what that's about is becoming a friend is all about becoming like 
Jesus. Only people with an incredibly religious spirit hated Christ. Okay, Satan, but he's got one of the most religious spirits of anyone out there. Our thoughts, our actions, our eyes, our words. These are some things that are so important that we must learn and get into us in terms of how to guard, how to grow these different areas of our life. In terms of becoming the right friend or the right marriage material, here's a few things I want to get into with you. Um, We do have a a mature crowd in here. I want to talk about eyes for a minute. Talk about eyes and how important this is. We need to understand something is that the Bible tells us that revelation is the highest form of seeing. It's like 2020 to the max. Think about John in the book of Revelation. He was down here on earth and then he was able to go up and see things in the spirit. He was caught up in the spirit and he was able to see things all the way to the end of time. So spiritually, having spiritual eyes, being able to see after the spirit is the highest level of seeing. So in other words, I want to know what God sees. God, what do you see? You see my beginning from my end all at the same time. So what do you see? Do you see my future spouse? Who do you have for me? So that's really, really important that we get that. How does a young man keep his way pure? Let's look at Psalm 119. Go there with me, please. Let me hear the rustling of your iPads and iPhones. Androids. Check this out. How can a young person stay pure? It's not in respecter of age, old, young. By obeying your word and following its rules. Man, I've tried my best to find you. Don't let me wander from your commands, God. Verse 11, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I have hidden your word in my heart. How does a young person keep their way pure? By keeping it according to your word. I have stored up, I have treasured your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. Keys right there for how we are to walk with God. How about a love for God's word? Verse 97 in Psalm 119. Oh, how I love your word. I think about it all day long. Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light for my path. How am I supposed to know, Lord, who you have? Who's who's your choice? Who's your choice, Lord? Well, I just go to Romans 12 and I just learn that I present my body, my whole being, my spirit, soul, and body to the Lord as a living and holy sacrifice. And as I do that, I will learn what the perfect, good, and acceptable will of God is. Giving myself first, and then I'll learn. 2 Samuel 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. Who's this story about? It's about David. 
David, man after God's own heart, powerful, powerful worshiper. I'm sure he's going to be leading worship in heaven when we get there. But he, he, had a, he had an issue because he began to develop something with his eyes that would lead him astray. Check this out. Chapter 11, verse 1. The following spring, the time of year when kings go to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to destroy the Ammonites. So he sends his boys out ahead of him. He's the king. He's supposed to be going out to war. And yet he stays home. And in the process, they laid siege. But David, but David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Late one afternoon, he's getting up late, sleeping in late, getting lazy. He's not disciplining himself. Believe me, I am not judging this man. Anybody who fails, in Scripture, many of them are our brothers and sisters, and their lives. The mercy of God to put somebody's life on display publicly for humiliation. Not for the purpose to humiliate them, but it is humiliating. Wow. Because the end of the story is the man repented, right? But we learn from their mistakes. Bed after taking a nap, he went for a stroll on the roof of the palace As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. He needed someone to say, bro, what are you thinking? Dude, no. I know you're the king. Take my life if you have to, but I'm your friend. Stop. She is not your wife. David sent for her. Ah. Judges 13. Judges 13. We're looking there and at, at David and you know just the he was caught. His eyes were captured by something. It didn't just happen that day. The decision, he had all nine months, you know, from the last time that they had gone out to war or whatever it was, you know, and he had all this time to let down areas of compromise where he allowed his, his, his heart to slip, his, his affections and devotions to begin to slip and wane. They were so focused on the Lord before because he was so desperate You know, all the victories were coming as a result of him seeking God. And now he stopped seeking the Lord. He's he's waking up late. Rather than getting up early and seeking the Lord, he's sleeping in. Judges chapter 13. I was in Joshua. Here we go. Judges chapter 13. Uh, Skip ahead to 14. We see in 13 how the angel of the Lord comes to Samson's parents. They say, your son has been set apart as a Nazarite. And then Samson grows up. Chapter 14 here. One day when Samson was in Timnah, he noticed a certain Philistine woman. When he returned home, he told his father and mother, I want to marry a young Philistine woman. 
I saw in Timnah. See, this isn't someone that he knew. He wasn't saying, I noticed this amazing character about this woman. He was just drawn to her physical beauty. He knew nothing about her. Not only that, but she's part of you know, their, their enemies. She's part of this pagan culture. His father and mother, they objected strenuously. Isn't there one woman in our tribe or among all the Israelites you could marry? Why must you marry the pagan Philistine to find a wife? But, but Samson, verse... Let's see, what is this? Uh, verse 3, second part. But Samson told his father. Big problem right there. We learned something right there. As soon as you start telling your parents what to do, you should think of Samson and go, oh, no. It's about to come down. Get her for me. She is the one I want. She's the one I want. What he's saying there, she's one of many. She's not the one. She's not the one. Let's skip over here to look at some of the things of Samson's character. Chapter 15, verse 3. Samson said this is the time he'd been wreaking havoc on the Philistines and doing different things. And then something happened uh, that made him mad. And so his anger gets the best of him here. You can see this anger begin to rule him. Samson said, this time I cannot be blamed for everything I'm going to do to you Philistines. See, he stops taking responsibility for his actions. I can't be held responsible for this. Doesn't take responsibility, his lack of character. Here's what happens. Lust destroys character and everyone around you. We're going to finish up here. Look at this. Verse 17 of chapter 16. Finally, we know the end of the story. Delilah, finally the girl that he ends up with, who's a Philistine. She finally is just working him over, working him over, trying to get him to tell her the secret of his strength. Finally, Samson told her his secret. My hair has never been cut, he confessed. For I was dedicated to God, a Nazarite from birth. A Nazarite was raised up of God to be an example of purity and holiness, to represent, to be a demonstration of God to the people. They were a rescuer. They were to be a representation of covenant. If my head were shaved, if you can somehow find a way to separate me from my covenant with God... If you can find a way to separate me from my, de- from my dedication to God, from my consecration to God, this is what's going to happen. My strength would leave me and I would become as weak as anyone else. When we are separated from our purity, from the holiness of God, we become common like anyone else. As we said a couple weeks ago, can God restore? Does He redeem? Yes, that's what He loves to do. To forgive. And we see even in the end of this story, God restores some things to Him. And He's able to have victory there. But His life would end. We have been consecrated to God. We have been promised 
as one husband, to one husband, Jesus Christ, as a pure bride. We have been promised as a pure bride. I was... I don't get GQ, but I, I saw this pop up on uh, news feed here. GQ magazine. If you've ever read GQ magazine, I used to get GQ in, in college. And uh, I mean, it's, it's racy stuff. But here, check this out. The, the title of the article is 10 Reasons Why You Should Quit Watching Porn. Basically, why you should stop getting our magazine. With easy access to porn these days, it shouldn't be as a surprise that people are beginning to study the effects of sex in our lives according to or the effects of porn in our lives. According to a website called ProjectKnow.com, 420 million web pages are dedicated to porn. 420 million. What's left? Wikipedia. That's it, pretty much. Scientists at Cambridge University recently studied the brain scans of porn addicts and found that they looked exactly like those of drug addicts. Same deal. Um, I taught abstinence education in schools for a a few different years. Uh, We we have the studies then, and we were sharing it with young people. So we were going, but studies show that the same where, where sexual climax takes place in the brain, the same place where cocaine um, has the same effect. The same effect. There's a growing concern that the beginning, that pornography is beginning to affect our brains, our relationships, and even our bodies. A growing concern. I'm, I'm glad GQ is... Growing with concern. A recent survey of a Reddit community called NoFap, committed to abstaining from porn and masturbation, has helped researchers open the door to a better understanding. So this is a, a, a group that they've been studying, working with, who are cooperating with them in this. These aren't, understand when I read some of these things, um, it's not going to talk about people who don't even know they're stuck in this stuff or even want to get out of their addictions to pornography. None of the results are conclusive, but they certainly um, cause us for a moment's pause. Listen, I'm just going to read a couple of them here. There's ten of them of why you should stop reading or stop watching porn. Number one, for those addicted to porn, arousal actually declined with the same mate, while those who regularly found different mates were able to continue their arousal. It's known as the Coolidge effect. Porn trains the viewer to expect constant newness. Pornography is a work of the enemy, totally flies in the face of monogamy and faithfulness. In other words, you can't, people are struggling to even have arousal unless they're with multiple partners all the time because they're constantly looking at new and more pornography. One in five people who regularly watch porn admitted to feeling controlled by their own sexual desires. James said that a long time ago. 2,000 years ago. Talked about how temptation gives birth to sin. To the point where it drags us and pulls us away, the Scripture says. Where it feels like we're being controlled by it. If we give in to something enough, it is going to take control of us where we feel like we're addicted to it. And it's happening. 
almost 50% of those at NoFap. This is just in this, in this group who want to get free and who are, who are um, committing to abstaining from pornography and masturbation have never had intercourse in their lives, meaning their only experience with intimacy is purely digital. This is GQ. 53% of the nofappers developed a regular porn habit between the ages of 12 and 14, an alarming 16% said they started much before 12. 64% report that their tastes in porn have become more extreme or deviant. Surprise, surprise. It cannot continue to satisfy. It must get more and more deviant. Which is obviously the complete opposite of what a covenant relationship in the context of marriage looks like. The reason why, one of the reasons why, is because the, obviously the, the, the foundation of this whole thing is lust. And lust cannot be satisfied. Lust cannot be satisfied. Among 27 to 31-year-olds on NOFAP, 19% suffer from a, a number of things here, a number of conditions. I don't need to go into those things. After committing, this is the last one, after committing to no, na, no masturbation and porn, 60% of those on NOFAP felt that their sexual functions had improved. So once they stopped giving themselves to pornography and these things, they began to see a radical change. This is one of the reasons why we have um, started something here for our men called um, Fight Clubs. If you were at the men's breakfast, if you missed that, we've been starting just making invitations to guys to be a part of groups. And it's not just for accountability for these types of things, but to grow in relationship with one another, to help one another walk out their life with Christ. It's not about abstaining from something so much as it is pursuing after the Lord with those who call on God with a pure heart. That's what, that's what Paul says to Timothy. And we, none of us, are exempt from those things. I've never met a wife who said, yeah, I don't want my, I don't want my husband to be in some form of accountability or, or you know, group um, that he can grow with those men and build relationship with them. And I would encourage you men to get involved in those things. The whole goal of the enemy, we see that in the story of David, we see that in the story of Samson, is isolation. They cut themselves off from their parents. They cut themselves off from their war buddies. And they found themselves alone. And that enemy waited and waited and waited and waited and waited. Until they became just like any other man who was giving themselves to these types of things. Would you stand with me? I, I want to pray for us. This is... Obviously, something that is is rampant. Um, it's these types of things are are um, common commonplace in the world, in the church. It, it doesn't matter. Um, it's commonplace in the lives of human beings. But here's the thing: I take comfort in you see Paul addressing like he does with this the the church of Corinth and this culture that they were saturated in. And, and God was absolutely coming through and just coming through with His love, His redemption, His restoration. Seeing people set right, set free, on fire for God. Living that simple life, full of God's Word. Building relationships according to His blueprint. 
Amen. Jesus, we thank You for Your Word. Lord, we're here to do as Your Word says, which is to present the members of our bodies as instruments of righteousness for Your glory. Lord, allow us to see after the Spirit the highest form of seeing, that we could trust You, that we would not be deceived. Thank You for the example of Eve of what she went through, of that confusion. But God, You've given us Your Word. You've given us inspectors of Your Holy Spirit. You've given us Your church. People with experience that have been married for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years that are examples that infuse us with faith. People have been walking in friendships for years and they've been doing it great. God, may we stop looking for the right one, but that we would focus on You making us into the right one. That we would become the right one, the right friend, the right marriage partner. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Bless you. Bless you.